0: Get out and do that. People are so much more capable than they realize. And even though it's like grueling and insane, and we've talked about puking and diarrhea and blisters and heat stroke and all this stuff, most of the time, it's actually really fun. And the other crazy cool thing about ultra sports is you can go out there and just suffer like crazy. And like within five minutes of finishing, you just think it was the greatest thing that you ever did in your life. And you just like forget about all the, you know, painful stuff. And you just remember all the great stuff
1: and welcome back to the ultra running guys you got jeremy reynolds and jeff winchester of the ultra running guys and to our uh listening family thanks so much for taking the time to be here with us and here's the deal this is a special episode not only is it episode 30 But we are also releasing this episode on September 18th, which happens to coincide with the first race that we're doing that we are putting on as the ultra running guys so uh, it just happened this way but to commemorate (laughs) our first races race directors we have brought on our guest tonight, uh, to be honest, one of the most iconic names in really ultra running history. So whether you recognize the name or not outright, you're going to recognize, uh, the race that he's behind the world's toughest foot race, the Badwater 135 Um, and this guy is also just an athlete in his own right. I, this is something I didn't know until I started kind of digging in, but, uh, he was also the youngest person to complete the race against America bike race at the age of 20, uh, which is a ride 3,127 miles in 11 days. So, uh, man with that, Chris Kosman, welcome to the show.
0: It's great to be here. Thank you very much.
1: We are just super excited to have you on. Obviously, uh, your breadth of experience, the things you've seen, and so that's really where we want to go tonight. We we kind of want to you know spend a little while picking your brain. But before we get into that, um, just in case there's two people out there you know that are in ultra running that haven't heard of the Badwater 135 or don't know the details about it, can you just kind of give us the two to three minute overview of the race itself? And what makes it the um, toughest, the world's toughest foot race?
0: Sure. Yeah, it's uh, the Badwater 135 is uh, recognized the world over as the world's toughest foot race because it is 135 miles against the clock from Badwater Basin, which is the lowest point in North America, to the end of the road on Mount Whitney. And so it climbs almost 15,000 feet uh, over up to 48 hours. And it's held in July And Death Valley is the Guinness Book World Record hottest place on Earth. So we hold it at the hottest time of year and the hottest place on Earth. It's 135 miles with three mountain ranges to climb. And, uh, you know, bone crunching pavement that's radiating 180 degree temperatures at the at the runners. And uh, it's it's uh, yeah, it's really something. And I've been producing it for 22 years now. And uh, you know we have people come from all over the world. And you know, most years we have 20 to 25 American states and 20 to 25 countries represented with a field of just 100 runners. It's invitational. People have to have completed generally at least three 100 milers even to apply. And then those people don't get in. Uh, so you know, we're, we're looking for more than just that. We're looking for people who ideally have been on a support crew at the race, or and or done, you know, other really caught extreme condition races. Um, And yeah, so we select the field each year. And uh, that's another thing that makes it different from all the other races that are either first come, first serve or lotteries, that kind of thing. Uh, We're looking for the 100 runners from as many states and countries as possible who are likely to finish the race, which is why we'll have an average finishing rate of 80, 82% most years. And uh, that's what it was this year. In the last half dozen years, it's ranged from 71 to 93%. So it's got a high finishing rate, but that's because of the selection process, um, the qualifying standards to even be selected. Uh, And then each runner has a support crew, which takes care of them along the way. And, uh, you know, we have a 50-person race staff, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of the details later. But so we're out there supporting them, too. But the direct support is, is the responsibility of each runner support crew. And the reason we do it that way, as I've said many times, both humorously and seriously, if we tried to set up aid stations on the side of the road in Death Valley running for up to 24 hours, the aid station volunteers would die. And, uh, and that's why the runners each need a support crew to take care of them. And uh, so I, it's been my pleasure to put it on for 22 years now. Along the way, I've started uh, sister races, Badwater Cape Fear in North Carolina, Badwater Salton Sea down in the Anza Borrego Desert of far Southern California. Uh, I've got other new events in the works, both domestically and overseas. And so Badwater is is more than one race or a series of races. It's a way of life and a way of uh, looking at the world and you know chasing that horizon continuously and and self, you know, path of self improvement, and uh, you know, exploring the inner and outer universes. So there you go. That's my short commercial. So
2: yeah, that's that's a great commercial, thanks Chris. And so <clears throat> I'm going to gush a little bit. I'm going to go ahead and tell everybody. Um, you know, I first met you back in 2017, volunteering at the Badwater, Cape Fear, um, and I, I respect so much what you said about the fact you wouldn't put aid stations at Death Valley there because I do aid station two, um, what I championed for two years and you sit there in the middle and it's desolate. And so I can't imagine being in, you know, Death Valley on that road, just burning up. And yeah. so um, I, I respect that a lot. Um, very good race, um, the K Four One. I'll, I know we'll talk about that as well. But one of the things before we get into some of those details, um, you haven't always been involved. Um, like you started really doing uh, bike races and everything at first, but how did you get into putting on ultras, like running ultras um, themselves and specifically Badwater itself?
0: Well, so I, I got involved with ultra cycling when I was in high school, when I was a freshman in high school, as luck would or fate would have it. The year I got into cycling was the year the Race Across America was started, 1982. And uh, through uh, friends of the family, uh, I got to meet the guy who would win the first two years races. And then uh, so I got to you know, hang out with him and his support crew before those first two races when I was like 15, 16 years old. Um, and then I met the creator and race director of the Race Across America uh, when I was 16. And uh, he took me in, his name is John Marino. He took me under his wing um, and became my mentor with you know cycling and training, but also getting sponsored, promoting myself and all of that, because I was a teenager. And then I was a college student, then I was a grad student. Like I couldn't pay for all the racing that I wanted to do. I needed sponsors. And so I grew up with that race. And I worked on the race, I worked on the qualifying race, and then I competed in it when I was, uh, the Race Across America when I was 20. And um, went coast to coast in less than 11 days, San Francisco to Washington DC. And so at that point I was 20 and I'd been working on uh, races since I was 16. And I had started organizing um, my own record attempts, like what we now call FKT in the ultra running world, fastest known time. That was happening in ultra cycling starting in the 70s Mm -hmm. and uh but there was actually a race official that would come along from the governing body so it wasn't purely you know sort of submitting gps logs which of course didn't exist then or uh you know it was so i that's i the first thing i did was i set the first ever san francisco to los angeles record cycling record when i was 17. And so I I date my event promoting career to that because I put together a route, I had a support team, I had sponsors, you know, I had, you know, race official, I had, you know, press releases and all the things that, you know, basically go into hosting events started then. So I was 17, then I did the Race Across America when I was 20, like I mentioned, which was a huge, massive, just pivotal experience for me, um, And it was after that, that I suddenly realized, oh, I'm an athlete. Like up until then, I was just purely, I'm a cyclist. I'm a bike racer. I'm an ultra cyclist. That was my persona. And it was, but in the lead up to that race across America, kind of on a whim, I did a couple of running races, like the Beta Breakers 12K in San Francisco. I did a couple of short course triathlons. And, but then after I finished the race, I thought, oh, You know, I guess I, you know, I'm an athlete, not just a cyclist, and I could do other things. And so although bike racing remained my main focus, uh, you know, for another several, seven years or so after that race, that's when I started doing Ironman triathlons. And uh, then after I did two of those, um, I started doing, I did three different 100-mile snowshoe running races in Alaska. And so the cycling was like the foundation and how I got fit and got to know myself and and eventually perceive myself as an athlete. And then that's what led into doing the other sports. So ever since then, cycling has always been kind of my main personal thing. But I, you know, continued to run, sometimes swim, sometimes triathlon. You know, I, I do a lot of stand-up boarding uh, I just like moving outdoors. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I took over the Badwater 135, I hadn't organized any running races uh, well I take that back I'd organized a fundraising 5k for a charity <laughs> a long time ago and I had put on a three-day triathlon stage race which included a double marathon run on the third day wow. um, but in practical terms my running background or even running promoting background wasn't really all that important in terms of taking over the Badwater 135 because the race is held on open paved roads with cars on them. And when I took over the Badwater 135, I was one of the top two or three experts on that in the world. Because after doing the, you know, besides doing the Race Across America, I was also on the staff of it and one of the, for 13 years and a race director for six years. And so I had seen just everything happen on the open roads of America you know, for so long, once I took over the Badwater 135. What's crazy is when I took the race over, it had been put on by this huge international multi-million dollar shoe company, but their entire race staff was two people. (laughs) And they would just come out, do kind of an informal pre-race meeting. And then the next day they'd meet everybody at the start line, take a few pictures, count down from 10, say go. They would drive along taking pictures for a while, And then they would drive into Lone Pine and go to sleep for the night. And then they would just drive up to the finish line and wait there for people to get there. So it was almost like FKT loosely organized into a group adventure. And so what happened was I'd been producing a 508-mile bicycle race that went through Death Valley for 10 years before I took over the Badwater 135. And so I was very familiar with the area, the roads, the park service, the county, the highway patrol. So... When I went, I went out to watch the 1999 race because the organizers then were getting out of it. They, they produced shoes. They weren't interested in ultra running. They didn't even make a road shoe anymore. And so I went out to watch in 1999. And honestly, I was completely horrified and appalled at everything that I saw. Like <laughs> I thought the runners and the running and the route were awesome. And I knew the, you know, I knew the route very well. I'd done a bike race on that course. I'd been out there a zillion times. Um, but there was no oversight of the race whatsoever. And there were basically no rules. And even if there were rules, there was nobody there to enforce them. And there were no timing checkpoints. There were no roving officials. There was no medical support. There was no communications on the route like radios and satellite phones and things like that. Um, There was no photography. There was nobody doing a webcast, you know, which I'd been doing for about four years at that point with my bike race out there where we were putting image galleries and race updates and time splits and things online. You know, back in the nineties, that was, you know I was cutting edge with that. And and here they're this giant international shoe company and they're not doing any of those things. So when I um, went out there to see the race and get ready to take it over I had a much different vision for the event. Uh, you know, of course, the same layout and the same concept. And so the same idea of running from Badwater Basin to, to uh, Whitney Portal. Another thing was the previous race director literally told me he didn't let anyone in the race who didn't speak English. And I grew up, at, you know, I was an exchange student in Egypt in high school. I spent two years traveling Europe and North Africa when I was growing up with my family. You know, I studied languages. I was uh, studied archaeology in college. You know, I worked overseas on projects. And so I looked at this race and I said, this is the Olympics of ultra running. Mm-hmm. And, and back then there were literally like 10 or 1500 mile ultras in America. That was it. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it was a tiny fraction of what exists now. And, and so I went out there with, so I met with the park service and told them I wanted to take the race over and that I wanted to make it a lot bigger but do it properly. And they literally thanked me. They said, we were (laughs) gonna shut this race down. It was so out of control, so dangerous, so not even mismanaged, just unmanaged that we weren't going to let it come back. But we know you, you've been working out here for 10 years. And so they approved me taking the race from an average of 25 runners a year to 90 initially, and then to 100 after a few years. Um, because I put structure in place. You know, I had rules and race officials, and we limited the crew size and the support vehicle size, and we went to a wave start, and, you know, we had communications on the course, and we had timing checkpoints. We knew where people were, you know, and, and all of these kind of things. And so, yeah, so it's, it's long-winded what I'm telling you, but, I mean, there's just a lot that, you know, I had to start from scratch, basically, out there. I had a concept and a route, but that was it and it was awesome. I mean, I'll never forget that first year and what a how exciting it was and how totally stoked I was to to, you know, bring these runners together and to, you know, relaunch the event into the modern era and start putting it on the footing that it should have had from the beginning.
1: One of the things that that really jumps out to me and it's kind of what you were just saying bringing the runners together. And so we were talking you know, obviously we could probably talk about the race for, for three hours of just the race itself and the logistics and everything. I know there's a lot of information out there, mm-hmm. but we were talking, if you did a Venn diagram, essentially of ultra running, right? You've got all these incredible stories and runners and people out there, but so many of them are going to crisscross or connect in the middle, which is Chris Cosman, right? So you had this unique experience, at least from our perspective,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, where you have, I mean... Most of the books that I read when I got into ultra running, right? You got Dean Carnez's ultra marathon, man. You've got David Goggins and his book. You've got, Scott. Um, yeah, uh, Scott Jurek. You've got, I mean, even just born to run talks about the race and talks about this race and what you're doing is iconic. And so and when we were, forget
0: Charlie Angle. Well, he was of one time. of our guests. I
1: was going to say, and yeah. we've had a couple people on the, yeah. the show, yeah. you know, that, that have done it. So Andy Glaze, he was one of the, uh, I guess, percentage that sure. didn't make it. But <laughs> he had a great story about a, a full body, you know, lockup at mile 50. But yeah, I mean, same thing, Charlie Angle, one of my favorite books. And, and I know you guys ha- have a good relationship, but um, and if you want to give us any dirt on him, we'll take it too. But... Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah, some, there's, some, there's some actually been time. quite a few others. You know, there's Cam Reed's book, and then there's right. books by Mimi Anderson from the UK. There's a lot of books that that are about or reference Badwater, which is awesome.
1: Well, so what I was going to say is really that's where we want to we, you know, from our perspective, you've got a you've got a unique, um, I guess, setting perspective, whatever. That we just kind of want to pick your brain a little bit as far as an expert in seeing it and seeing Seeing the best ultra runners in the world perform at their best in some of the harshest conditions yeah um so we want to kind of spend some time you know doing that as well and uh you know kind of see what you think about some things and i guess really the first question that i have is from everything you know you've seen what makes a successful ultra runner what do you what do you think those characteristics are that bring people success on your course
0: the absolute bottom line, most important thing that indicates somebody who will be successful really with anything in life, but especially things that have very delayed gratification is that they have to want to do it. It's all about, they have to live and breathe that when their mind drifts off drifts off at work or school or when they're wake up in the morning or when they're laying in bed at night, they're thinking about ultra running or they're thinking about bad water. Those are the people who can do the race. And most of them actually make it look pretty easy. Um, And that has changed over the years. I mean, it's definitely, you know, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have said that. But the people who really want this are the ones who can. Mm -hmm. And now, is it, it's sort of a chicken and the egg thing though, right? Is it the people who are capable, who want to do it? Or do they want to do it and they find they're capable or make themselves capable? Having put this race on as long as I have, And we have this selection process where we literally ask them, why do you want to compete in the Badwater 135? And and we ask them other things, too. You know, it changes over the years, but who is your Badwater idol and why? Uh, What is the meaning of Badwater to you? Not just the race, but the whole brand. What is the meaning of life? I mean, these are things that we ask people. And what I have observed over the years is the influence of other people. So everyone you just mentioned that we discussed who've written books, I have gotten many, you know, multitudes of applicants who have said, well, I was a 250-pound chain smoker, and then I read Pam Reed's book or Charlie Engel's book or Dean Carnaz's book, and I found out that people – did these things, and I didn't even know ultra marathons exist. Like I'd heard of the Boston Marathon, but you know I wasn't even a runner. And now here I am, you know, six years later, and you know I weigh one seventy, and I've run this, that, and the other races, and I've now got the three one hundred milers that you know to apply. And I was on a crew last summer at Badwater, and I can't even believe it. But here I am applying. There's a decent number of people that have been influenced to get into shape and become an ultra runner because of the race and the people who do it. Um, then we have, the, you know, the people who have been runners forever. They were already doing Ironmans 20, 30 years ago, um, or they did, you know, 27 marathons. And then they did their first ultra and they discovered this whole other community that they didn't really know anything about. And it's, it's so welcoming and it's not totally fixated on PRs and, and, you know, body fat percentage and other things. And, uh, and it, then they, you know, kind of grew into ultra running. And so, and there's a lot of those people the, wanting to do it is the biggest thing. And there, and what comes with that are so many other things like, well, you really want to do it. That means you're going to get out of bed at four in the morning and go train before you get your kids ready for school and you go to work. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you're going to go do your training after the kids go to bed and you're going to be out till midnight. And you're going to actually enjoy most of that because you're just so passionate about the sport and the community and your goals. And You know, we refer to the Badwater 135 belt buckle as the holy grail of ultra running. And uh, I'm holding one up right now. And uh, uh, it's incredible how much the symbolism of being awarded and then owning and having earned that buckle is to people and what a draw it is. It's like a beacon just drawing people in. I mean, it's still only ever gonna be, you know, a micro fraction of the population or even of the runners who are gonna do an event like this. I mean, we've had less than 1,000 finishers of the race over the decades. I mean, 10 times that many have summited Mount, Mount Everest. Um, but yeah, so passion and then what that means, that, it, it, you know, that you're gonna get out and train, that you're gonna do all of the research and studying and learning about the sport. And then the particulars of our event, which are quite different from you know, the most of the other, most other ultras are on, the, on trails, um, don't have support crews, um, and they're quite different. I mean, the, the physical aspect is generally similar in terms of running far through up and down mountains, but you know, doing the homework to really understand what our event is about and the, you know, the support crew and the nutrition and the heat training, like literally training your body for for the heat over like 40 days prior to the race. Um, coming out and working on a support crew to support another runner and see all that hands-on. And, and there's just so much to absorb and embrace. I mean, we have seven pages of rules for the race. I wow. mean, I don't love that, but we don't have one rule I could get rid of. You know, it's all based on Common sense, highway safety requirements from the Park Service, the Forest Service, the Department of Transportation, uh, the county, etc. It's just it. It's a way of life, and but what people have discovered over the years is that, you know, it transcends and permeates everything else in their life, and and so yeah. So really, desire is the main thing because from that flows all the other good things like regular training, like eating well, like learning about hydration, uh, learning about uh, you know supplements, and uh, cross training you know yoga, Pilates, uh, strength training uh, you know all those other things that people need to do to, to get fit and strong to to do our race.
1: You know, obviously, to your point, a small fraction of the population is ever going to run bad water, right? But we've got, um, to be honest, a lot of our audience is uh, new in ultra running. or Mm -hmm. thinking about ultra running. And I think a lot of the same stuff still applies, whether you're trying to tackle your first 50K or whether you're at that level and you're Mm -hmm. looking at, I think I'm ready to try bad water. You mentioned right at the beginning, the inner and outer universe. And I've heard you talk about it before um, on another podcast. Can you go into that just a little bit? Because I think that that's something that our listeners uh, can really benefit from.
0: Yeah. So like I said, I got involved with ultra sports when I was a teenager and I was mind blown at how I would have these sort of transcendent self-exploratory universe bonding experiences out there initially on my bicycle, but later on foot and snowshoe and swimming and otherwise while you're you're so present in what you're doing that you are kind of like a zen master while you're doing these things because you're taking in the terrain you're taking in the weather and you're taking in the the sounds and the scents and everything but then at the same time you're like noticing your breathing rate and your heart rate and do you feel hungry or not and are you you know thirsty or not and uh, how's your energy? Are you getting an energy low? And so you're just, when you're doing ultra endurance sports, just out of necessity and out of just that's what it is, you're totally tuned in to everything around you and everything inside you. And my experience is that that's what happens when you get into the ultra zone, regardless of sport. Like you can go you know, out on a hour mile, you know, an hour run, you know, after work. And most of the time you're, you're thinking about work or you're thinking about your to-do list. You're thinking about, you know, you got to get home and get dinner ready. You're, you're thinking about all that stuff. But right. when you get further into things, you know, however long that takes, um, you know, five hours, 10 hours, 15 hours, 20, 24, you get way out there. Then that's when everything else just falls away and you blend with the whole universe and with yourself. And you don't always like everything you see. Um, and, and that's part of also being successful in ultra running and ultra sports is you learn to disassociate like, oh, yeah, I don't care that that hurts. And there was a, a guy named Kurt Maples who did our Badwater 135 several times. And he probably didn't coin this phrase, but he's the first one I heard say it, which is he, he would always say, mind over matter. If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. And I don't know if he invented that or not. I first heard him say it in 1999, but I love it because, you know, people get so worked up about so many things. I mean, look at social media, how people just like instantly react to all kinds of nonsense that they see on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and they can't help themselves. And, but it's like, you know what? We don't actually have to care about everything all the time. (laughs) And it's overwhelming to try to do so. And so when you go out and just, you know, run all day and night or bike all day and night, uh triathlon all day and night all that stuff falls away and you just do what you're doing like when way back when i was 20 and i was in the race across america and i had a 12 person support team with a car van and a motorhome, and i had a little radio clipped to my collar and i could talk to the support band behind me and they would talk back to me over the loudspeaker and i remember saying to them we've just been out here for like a week we don't know what's going on in the world and of course this was before cell phones and the internet and stuff but we're like world war three might have started and we don't know like we'll find the finish line is at washington monument and so probably when we approach washington dc if there's like martial law that's when we'll have like discovered that world war three happened but as far as we're concerned this is everything that matters is what we're doing right now and there are many times and places in life when you can live that and uh, and feel that way and just like totally be present and so you know discovering yourself and and you know what you're made of and and what you can just not care about uh is 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 right you know part of you know what I call exploring the inner and outer universes and you know just the appreciation for the things around you like my some of my most favorite um experiences where those hundred mile snowshoe races I did in Alaska because there was this mountain range on our left called the Susitna and then there was these like hills coming down these uh, ridges that were coming down like the mountain goes this way but there's these ridges that are coming down and we were going over a ridge and then across you know a frozen lake or river between and then over another ridge and then back down and then over another ridge and back down and every time I'd get to the top of one of those ridges I would look ahead into the distance and you could kind of see the Iditarod Trail because it's kind of cut through the trees or, or it's on a riverbed. And you could see the horizon like three ridges lines away. Wow. And yeah. I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm headed there. <laughs> and then my horizon just kept going further and further away. And of course, I never got there. Right. And I mean, I would get to the horizon, but then there'd just be another one. And so I, I came up with the phrase chasing the horizon. And, you know, you don't feel geography when you fly over it. You don't really feel it when you drive over it. But if you bike or run or hike over it, then you totally feel it. And you experience the outer universe in a totally different way that's so much more tangible. You know, and so like, I know what it's like to bike across America. And I know what our continent looks like. Even all these decades later, I, you know, I I hear or see a reference to, like, Indiana or Missouri, you know, eastern Colorado or a certain pass or whatever, and I know exactly what it's like. And I can remember whether I was there during the day or the night, you know, and I can still picture, you know, a few hundred miles of the Iditarod Trail. So that, it's just that whole interplay between what's inside you and what are you tuned into and then where are you going and, um, you know, and I... I always encourage people to look forward and look up ahead. And it's a little easier to do on a road than a trail, you know, because we're always worried about tripping and stuff. Right. Um, but seeing, even if you have to stop for a second, like when you stop to pee or to like refill your camelback or something, like, you know, stand up straight and like look around and see what's there. Yeah. I, awesome. I,
2: I really appreciate you saying that. It, this is becoming a theme that I've picked up on with, with many of our guests that we've had. Um, and it's it's now resonated every time one of our guests says it to me that it, it is stuck in my crawl and in a good way, because, you know, I've been um I finished 100 i I've done to 100 that kind of thing and and I remember when I did enough to 100 the, the entire time it was so inward focus right but what i'm hearing from guests all the time, um, particularly those who've got a lot of experience in ultra um, is. If you can somehow, some way begin to just celebrate and experience, and pay attention to everything around you, and kind of just really press pause and appreciate what you are experiencing, it changes everything. I mean, like I've got the Yeti coming up, and I, I keep thinking about where I DNF enough last time I did it, and it, I remember DNF enough on the trail. It was pitch black, and all I remember is laying on the trail, feeling like crap, right? But I didn't appreciate the entire moment. I just was so self-absorbed with how I felt. And I think what you're saying, what other guests have said, is something that if if somebody's new to ultra, or even if even experienced and they struggle sometimes with it, if they could press pause, take lift their head up, look around and begin to kind of appreciate just the, the world that they're part of um, and the opportunity they have, I think it will will change their experience and will get them outside of their own selves. That would help them through that moment in a lot of ways. So I, I appreciate you saying it. Um, I want to I segue a little bit though, um, because, because you have seen a lot, um, as Jeremy was saying too. And one of the things that really Um, fascinates us about somebody who's who sat as a a quarterback watching all these players in their in their games right is you've seen some crazy crap right some crazy stuff in an ultra there's no way that you have not what what's something that you can look back on over the years that has has stood out to you as an experience that you saw Uh, maybe a runner experience or something like that
0: well I mean I've seen so many things like I I wish I'd like started keeping a diary way back when I became a race director because it's like you just see so many crazy, crazy things uh, when you're the race director and you're going up and down the course. Mm-hmm. And you know, that the, like the runner, they just see what they're doing and the few runners around them and the support crew sees their runner and a few other crews around them. And then, but when you're going up and down the course the whole time, and then in my case, I'm at the finish line for every finisher of all my races. And so then I'm seeing what they look like when they come in and I'm hearing what they have to say and all of that. Um, It really runs the gamut from like the most, you know, horrible despair to like the most incredible excitement and enthusiasm. Um, And and I see how much of it is mental, Mm -hmm. you know, And, and I'm always amazed every year at the Badwater 135, there will be really great runners who just get nauseous for a while they want to quit. And I'm just like, what? Like, and and sometimes I'm, you know, if they haven't already thrown in the towel and gotten in the car or whatever, you know, I can talk them down off the ledge. And I, you know, I feel like those like cops or firefighters who literally have to like talk some person off the ledge. They're like on the edge of a bridge or a mm-hmm. building. They want to jump off or something. And, and it's like, you know, get over it. Like, this is the world's toughest foot race. It's hotter than hell. Of course you're nauseous. this. Like, of course you're throwing up. Like, you know, of, of course you've had diarrhea nine times, you know, like this just happens out here. Like just, you know, but here's the thing. Like how many other, you know, I'll say to the person, like you've been, you to be in this race, you have to have been in many other races. Haven't you felt bad in those races too? But then you finished, right? I mean, you had enough finishes on your resume to be accepted into our event. And so people still need reminding that, like, it's going to get better. Like, almost everything that feels horrible physically, you know, and emotionally and otherwise in a race will go away. Because you'll just, you know, the sun will come up. Or you'll get a tailwind. Or you'll eat just the right thing. Or another competitor or your crew member will will you know, pat you on the back in just the right way or whatever. And then you'll just get over it and keep going. And, I mean, honestly, I'd like to have a rule that says anyone who's ever won our race before, if they drop out, they can never come back. <laughs> you know, like, it just blows my mind. Like, because what starts happening with some of these front runners is they, they're, they're in it to win it. And, oh, they, you know, they start feeling sick or whatever. They realize they're going to maybe be fifth. They'll just go home. And it really irks the hell out of me. Um, you know, here they have spent all this money. They spent all this time. They brought the support crew. They've come all the way out to, you know, Death Valley. And now they're just going to go home because they feel sick for a couple hours. like, you know, give me a break.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, interrupt. I think that that right there is such an incredible point. And it's mm-hmm. one of the things that we've talked about so much is your brain always tells you that it's only going to get worse. And so it's interesting to hear that people at that level, yeah. are still struggling through the same things. But we've talked about that we think is interesting. And even in uh, Western states, right, a lot of these big races, exactly what you're talking about. It's kind of go for broke or go home, you know, and they either win or not. Um, we thought it was super interesting. Camille Heron this last year, I don't know if you kept up with it, but, you know, she oh, Western almost dropped at Western and she finished in 27 hours. And to me, that was more impressive mm-hmm. to watch somebody at her level stick it out for 27 hours than to knock out 80 miles at you know the speed of heat and then like you're talking about pull the plug um so sorry for interjecting i just thought that was super interesting but no i
0: agree and and i saw that she did that and i was impressed yeah yeah Um, i mean honestly people who win races don't actually impress me that much they got it over so quickly they barely (laughs) felt any pain they missed out on most of the fun um (laughs) and the ethos of ultra sports is and hopefully always will be finish what you start.
2: Right,
1: one hundred percent.
0: You know, it's even these elite runners. You could count on less than one hand the the number who quote unquote make a living at it. And so you know their endorsement deals and whatever are not going to change that much if you know they don't win everything, mm. or you know, and people are fixated on their ultra sign up score and and stuff like that when. You know, I just feel like people like that are getting too far removed from what it's really all about. Um, There really is no professional ultra running. The people who make a living in ultra running do it because they also write books and coach people and do keynote speaking. That's how they make their money. Nobody's paying them to actually go out and run races or very little, like expenses, basically. I mean, literally like one hand, I bet you could count the people Mm -hmm. who, who actually can pay bills unrelated to running with their ultra running. Um, and so I just encourage people, whether they're going for their first 50K or the Badwater 135, to, the, to make their bottom line be that they will finish no matter what. Now, And, of course, not if they're going to, you know, severely injure themselves or, you know, have their Achilles rupture or something. That kind of thing almost never happens. Mm-hmm. I'm just so impressed. You know, I've had runners who have thrown up, you know, 40 times and had diarrhea 40 times on the course. And they finished. And that's totally awesome. I mean, yeah, it's like insane and kind of gross and whatever. But you know what? They finished. And that's what it's all about. I mean, it's a that's what all of these races are about. Not just like the super famous ones like iHost or the ones that are, you know, more expensive or whatever. It's the the whole sport is about finishing and celebrating that. And, and that's one of the things I love about the sport and in particular the Badwater family is like how supportive everyone is of one another. And, you know, one of my favorite stories is that um, we've had a, a guy in the race quite a few times named Oswaldo Lopez, and he was our 2011 champion. But before that, he was on the crew for the previous champion, mm-hmm. Jorge Pacheco. And they were a little over halfway in the race and heading halfway up the second major climb of the three in the race. Jorge was leading, and he was not feeling well at all. And in fact, um, I was coming up from behind and I saw Oswaldo, and then like a mile up, there was Jorge pulled over and in, in his support vehicle, feeling horrible on the side of the road. So I, you know, pulled over quickly, jumped out with my video camera. And so I could, you know, video the, the lead change. But instead, instead of Oswaldo blasting by, he runs over and stops at Jorge's van and starts talking to him saying, you got to get back out here you got to keep moving and you know it was such incredible sportsmanship and you know that's not how it works at the elite level in almost any sport you know if you were at the iron man and you saw that happening you'd speed up as you went by just to like extra psych out that person you just went by and but that's what happens at Badwater events and and you know to some degree you know ultra running across the sport and, and that kind of thing is just, you know, I just love that. And I was so honored and pleased that I not only got to see it, but I got to videotape it, put it in our video for that year. Um, and it was great. You know, Jorge got back out and he did finish and, and Oswaldo won. The other thing is that people are capable of so much more than they think. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had people start their ultra running career at Badwater Cape Fear. They've done the 51.4 mile race. Um, They come in just like, and before that, maybe they'd only done a marathon. In some cases, only a half marathon. And then they do this race, and they get totally turned on to ultra running and Badwater as well. And four or five years later, they're competing at the Badwater 135. And one example of that is Sandra Valines, who for her first ultra uh, was the was the Badwa- was Badwater-Cape Fear 51.4-mile race. And then uh, in 2014, and then in 2017, now she then went to Badwater-Salt-and-Sea twice and came back to Cape Fear again, et cetera. And she did a whole bunch of other races, but it started at Cape Fear. Mm. Then in 2014, three years later, she was the women's winner at Badwater 135. Wow. And then she went on to break the Trans-America Women's World Record, which had wow. stood for decades. And... So I always say, you don't know what you're capable of until you really put yourself on the line and get out there and find out. And, uh, you know, people should just go for this stuff, even if they're making a big leap. Like I've always had a rule of thumb personally that you can go twice as far as you've ever gone before. So, you know, and sometimes people do triple or quadruple that and, uh, and surprise themselves.
2: I don't think I can do a um 200.
0: Well, not with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, to a limit. Okay, it's not with that mindset. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't me go on forever. Right? <laughs> but, but you know, me, here's man. the thing especially when you get up to the 200s, the paces, I mean, the longer the race, the more the pace slows down. That's just. A and um so the races being longer, it, it doesn't necessarily make them harder. It just means that you're out there longer and that you have to want it more and mm-hmm. you have to deal with more ups and downs and kind of surf all of that. And you're going to have to like constantly troubleshoot. Why do I feel nauseous? Why do I have this pain in my knee? Why does my, do I feel a hot spot in this toe? You're just going to be dealing with more for longer.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of that, like when you, when you talk about some of the things that people have to deal with, when you look at the athletes that have run your races and everything, what are some of the biggest mistakes that they will make um out there obviously things that are going to make them dnf are are more obvious like you know quitting too early and stuff but what are some mistakes maybe they make earlier in their run that you see them doing
0: the first thing is starting too fast Mm -hmm. i mean people and it's not just in death valley where that matters now in heat it's even more important to tone it down a little bit because as you know the harder you run the more internal body heat you create Mm -hmm. And so if you're already in a hot environment, even if it's only like 80 degrees out, let alone 90 or 100 or 120, Mm -hmm. but even if it's 80 and you run really hard, you generate more heat internally. And now your body's working that much harder to deal with the climatic conditions. So the first thing is slowing down and, uh, and pacing yourself. Um, So many people have this attitude of like, oh, I want to get as many miles in the bank as I can while I still feel fresh or while it's still cool out. And that's just a huge mistake because it's, you don't want to, you're just putting yourself into deficit. I mean, it's sort of like just, you know, you're, you've run your checking account down to zero. and Now you're overdrawn. <laughs> now you've got to pay that back. It's kind of like that. So going out too hard, uh, getting, I mean, I can't even tell you the number, like Sandra Villains, when she won in 2017, she wasn't the women's leader for, I don't know, a hundred and some miles. Uh, she just uh, kept going at her pace running her race and the women ahead of her were either dying and slowing down or dropping out and she you know got to the front and i see that you know and not just with winners i mean there's plenty of examples of people who were last in a race and by the time they finish they're in the top 20 percent, or you know things like that happen all the time so the first thing is going out too hard the next thing is is eating and drinking all wrong and most people I see are eating too much. They're trying to consume way too many calories. They're like, oh, I'm burning 500 calories an hour. So I better eat 500. Wrong. The digestive system can only process like 200, 240 calories an hour. Eating any more than that Mm -hmm. is totally stupid and and counterproductive.
1: Especially Um, on the heat, I would imagine. yeah.
0: Yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, people like just drink water the whole time. Um, and you're going to flush all the electrolytes out of your bloodstream. So you've got to alternate water with electrolyte drinks or electrolyte pills, or even just eating tortilla chips and things that have salt on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really important. People come in. I mean, I've, especially in the early years of my having the Badwater 135, people came out and did some silly stuff. Like one guy came and his whole plan was he was going to do the whole thing on nothing but celery juice. <laughs> like, There's almost no, there's almost nothing in that, you know, and of course he didn't finish. Or they think they're just, you know, I just want to eat burgers the whole time and French fries and stuff. And your body is putting, all the blood is going to these muscles to drive you down the road or the trail. It's not sending blood over to your digestive system to help you process a burger and fries and a pizza and all of this. Um, It it depends on your pace. Like the intensity has a direct impact on what you can eat and, and and all of that, but yeah. And then caring too much about what place you're in. Yeah. It is, just, I mean, I learned this when I was the two weeks before I graduated high school, I was in the qualifying race for the Race Across America. It was a 714 mile bike race. You know, I was in like in the back of the pack and then I was the middle of the pack. And I just kept moving forward and going my pace and doing my race. And next thing I know I'm catching up to 12th place out of a hundred racers. And 12, the top 12 were going to qualify to be in the Race Across America. I passed probably 60 people with only physically passed like 15 of them mm. because the others just quit, That's you great. know, or they were sitting on the side of the road and I didn't even see them as I went by. Mm-hmm. And so just like staying focused on your goal. And I ended up, I was 18 first time I qualified for that, for the Race Across That's America. incredible. So
1: here, here's the deal. I know we're running a little bit short on time. We've got a couple things that, that I want to make sure we fit in. But one of the questions that we had on our list that I want to make sure I ask, out of all the people you've seen at their best, is there like anybody that you see as, you know, when it comes to boxing, everybody's like, oh, they're good. But if Muhammad Ali was still in his prime, you know, there's no way. Is there somebody that stands out that you just go, man, at their best, I don't know, and you can't say Charlie Angle we'll take that <laughs> <laughs> Well, you could, I mean, you could, but, but we all know it's Charlie. Engels, no, so we don't you know, know that at all. Um, but is there somebody that stands out you just think, I don't know if at their best they are unbeatable based off the, the history that you've seen?
0: Well, I mean, at our race, I would have to say somebody like Scott Jurek who's won it a few times. Um, Pam Reed who's won it a few times. Um, But honestly, having that perfect race is so elusive Mm. that the best racers come out and there can only be one man and one woman standing, you know, in first place on that podium at the end. And so the longer, tougher races, I love how it's still a crapshoot. To me, that's part of what makes it so interesting because you'll have people that you're just sure they're gonna be right up there, and then they don't finish, or they have a you know slow, tough race like Camille you mentioned earlier. Um, and then you'll have these you know total underdogs like Sandra Valines in 2017, and it's like she had a solid resume, you know, and if everything went perfect for her and less perfect for a few other people, she could win, and she did. And that's what happened, and it was awesome. And I always say when when you compete in an ultra so like let the badwater 135 100 runners invited you've already beat the other 7 billion people on the planet they're not even so you're already ahead of those 7 billion and now let's just see how you stack up against the 100 that are here now and so ultra running is still so there's so many variables that i don't think there's any you know One or two or three you know greatest Mm -hmm. runners not in races like 135 miles yeah 50k 50 mile trail races okay there are people that will just dominate that stuff Mm -hmm. at least regionally um you know there'll be like the local person who like wins almost everything but honestly the sport gets bigger every year you know 10 20 years ago you could be a big fish in a small pond but that pond keeps getting bigger every year as more people come into the sport
1: so one more quick question we asked, uh, we asked some of our listeners, hey, what do you want to know about 130, Badwater 135? And, of course, the first question that came in is from Jake Martinez, who was a previous guest as well and a listener. Melting shoes. Is that true? Do people's shoes melt?
0: Urban it's legend. sort of true. <laughs> urban, um, urban legend, right? <laughs> it's, it's sort of true. Yeah, everybody talks about running on the white line. You can't do that because you could put one foot on the white line, but if you were to put both feet constantly on the white line, you'd be like running like you're on a tight rope. Okay, right. so. Chafing. It, 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 yeah, yeah, a lot of chafing and, <laughs> and, and all kinds of weird biomechanical stuff going on, right? Um, so it, it is the road is 160, 180 degrees radiating at radiating at you. It depends on how hot it is. It depends on how recently the pavement was laid you know, because it, it gets lighter over the years when it's brand new, it's blacker and it's hotter. Um, it used to be that shoes would fall apart. What happens more is that because of the pounding, but also the heat coming up at the runners is their feet swell and swell and swell. And so, um, it's you know, those runners, most of which have traditional type shoes that kind of squeeze your toes a little bit, um, you know, tight toe, toe box they will be going up and up in sizes of shoes if they have them. Mm-hmm. And or they will be cutting the whole toe box out so their toes can expand. And I've even had people finish wearing like sandals. I don't know how many miles they did that way, but they had no shoes left uh, to to go up into.
2: <laughs> That's incredible. That's great. Yeah.
0: You know, when, you, when you talk about the world's toughest foot race all the time, it, it, it partly inspires people, but it also just like, scares it, people it terrifies
2: them it yeah terrifies i'll them. never
0: be able to, it's, i'll never be able to do that but i guarantee you there's people listening to this podcast right now yep. thinking i will never do that race i could never do that race that is i'm not capable of that um and they will be in the race in like three or four years
2: that and would so be incredible it,
0: it'll it'll totally happen uh and i love that
1: so in that thread you know we can kind of transition yeah. because we've talked about you have a couple other races cape fear which mm-hmm. sounded like it was a ca- a catalyst um you know for one of your champions already in the back Badwater 135 but i think it's a great point not everybody's gonna run the 135 um and like we said there's people that are going hey one day i'd love to run my first 50k my first 50 mile what does a 100 mile look like so you've got a couple different ones and obviously they're still unique Um, They're under the Badwater umbrella, Uh, but tell me what, so what makes a Badwater race? What qualifies? What are you looking for when you put something together under the Badwater brand?
0: So a Badwater event is, first of all, a really tough course. that's also scenic and photogenic, and it's in a place that most people wouldn't normally go to, Um, and then it's organized to a really high professional level, which is what we do. But at the same time, it's an intimate experience where you're not going to just be in a conga line, you know, or a crowd. Um, You're going to, you know, get to know the other runners, you're going to have time alone, and you're going to, you know, interact with our staff, and you're going to see me at the finish line. And so those are, you know, sort of the main elements of what defines our events. Because, you know, most race directors, you know, so you You've got the giant corporations that just put on races all over the place like in cities and counties that pay them to come there but then there's all the other like independent race directors most of them operate right where they live because that's convenient because they live there and they want to put on a race in their neighborhood and showcase where they live or the nearest park or the nearest national forest and all of that is totally cool but that doesn't mean they're necessarily putting on like in the coolest most interesting place either And so I like to take people to places they wouldn't normally go, like Death Valley, Mm -hmm. like the Salton Sea and Borrego Springs, like Bald Head Island, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Like I like taking people to destinations and then they get there and they're like, oh my God, it's so scenic. It's so incredible. It's so unique. And it's so hard. And, you know, and then the support is great. And the camaraderie and the esprit de corps is is off the charts. Mm -hmm. That's what I want people to discover and, and take home from that.
2: I will go ahead and attest that if anybody lives on like the East Coast of, of the states, they should they should go to the Bald Head um, race itself. You know, Badwater Cape Fear. I volunteered a couple of years. I, I ran it in 2019. and did the 50k. So if you're looking at doing a 50k or a 50 miler, um, it's definitely one to check out. Um, it is incredible, and it is deceptively, deceptively, deceptively hard. Um, and the reason it's so hard, I found when I ran it, um, is because. You fool us when you start off like a 12 and a half mile run on nice roads and everybody's having fun. The weather's cool at that point, the wind's you know not really beating on you yet and you're like flying. And so I just remember like running the first 12 miles at too fast that I shouldn't have been running at and then got to the, to the sand because the next nine mile loops we start doing back from one end of the beach to the other end is all sand with the ocean, with the tide coming in and out and everything. And it is, it's tough because you're on the sand. But what makes it tough is not just the sand, but it is the incredible wind that is constantly hammering um, at least one way in your face. But it makes it awesome. I mean, it is one of those experiences that um, it's two different races. It's on the the island of the roads themselves. And then when you get on the beach um, where you run and you have two different experiences. But if you live on the east coast of the state, I highly recommend you coming down for it. It is an incredible experience. I believe you can still sign up for it now. I think it's still got open slots and it is on October 2nd um coming yeah, out normally real soon. it's
0: in march but because of covid we moved both our spring races to the fall
2: so will you have it normally in 2022 in march also
0: yeah next year we'll be back on march 19th okay great yeah. so yeah so
2: if you can't make october because this is coming out on september 18th then maybe get the march one as well either one of those would work but yeah, yeah. it's it's definitely a fantastic taste and a um, taste of bad water and uh, like you said it is well run, it is well put together and you have an incredible staff that's there and you spend a lot of time investing in the runners and um, providing a, an incredible experience for them.
0: Thank you. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I live for, that's what I do, it's who I am.
1: <laughs> so on that, on that point, because I know we've got to wrap up here shortly, but you kind of referenced something. Um, and, and so one of our things was just, hey, what, what message or messages do you have to get across to our runners that maybe or our listeners that we haven't talked about, and you kind of talked about people getting to the sport. People can do more than they think they can. Is that something you want to expand on or is there anything else you want to touch on?
0: Yeah, I just, I really, I want people to go for it because you don't know if you don't try. And you know, it's running, humans are designed to run. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we've been around for millions of years And we didn't have air conditioning. We didn't have cars. You know, I had so many interviews this year in July because of the insane heat wave. And, you know, people were saying, well, is it safe to run in this heat? I'm like, well, first of all, this is typical Death Valley weather. (laughs) The news is that it's 120 degrees in British Columbia. Right? That's the news. But you know, I, I worked as an archeologist across the Middle East and South Asia, and I've studied ancient history, in, and I've traveled all over the world. But you don't have to have any of that background to realize air conditioning didn't exist 100 years ago, and cars, and all of that. And so people can adapt to all kinds of conditions, whether it's heat, cold, high altitude, you name it. Uh, people can adapt, and they can now intentionally adapt because they want to. Um, And, you know, running is a natural thing. Now, a lot of people don't really know how to run and they just go out and start running. And and some of those people run well. But I'll tell you one thing I see, the front runners in ultra marathons flow beautifully and they have great form. And that is one of the reasons, one of the main reasons they are at the front of the race is because their form is good. It's outstanding. And occasionally you see the exceptions to that. You know, people who can just sort of hurdle themselves down the road or the trail, you know. <laughs> um, but I encourage people to find coaches who teach natural running. Mm-hmm. Like there's a thing called chi running, mm-hmm. C-H-I yeah. running. And I I took one of those, you know, was trained in that years ago and it changed everything for me. I wish I'd known that back when I was doing all the 100-mile snow shoe races and things. But just getting out there and doing it and uh, just you know, go for it is the most important thing. Like, you know, as, as we ultra runners like to say, well, ultra really is anything longer than a marathon. And so technically 26.3 miles is an ultra, but realistically 50 kilometers, it's only five more miles than a marathon (laughs) and marathons are usually on pavement. And you just feel this like compulsion to like go as fast as you can and pass that person in front of you. But when you come to an ultra, all of a sudden it's like, you're, you're on a different planet Mm -hmm. and you don't necessarily feel compelled to pass the person in front of you. You might want to run along with them and shoot the breeze, um, and, and intentionally finish together. And, and then your pace slows down. And then usually there's trails and other things. And, you know the change the beating on your body and then that 50k might actually be quote unquote easier and definitely way more fun than a marathon yeah and so i i just want people to get out and go for it it doesn't have to be my races i mean just Mm -hmm. go to any and do it and you know but you know get recommendations from your friends read stuff online and see what what stokes you and just get out there and do it
1: that's awesome i agree so our, our message is just show up. That's kind of what we echo. And I think it's, you know, yeah. it's just a similar message. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of the reason we say just show up is because something sometimes things can just be overwhelming. Yeah. You know, but if, if you just show up and start to your point, you don't know what you're capable of, you right. may surprise yourself.
0: Yeah. Well, and everybody's got their baggage. Like everybody's got to make a living. Everybody's got family to take care of. You know, everybody has, you know, like my water tank just detonated last week (laughs) and dumped like 50 gallons of water. Thankfully, I was home. But it's like now I'm dealing with that, you know, several thousand dollars and whatever. But it's like everybody has that stuff. But you know what? When you go out and go for a run or a bike ride or just get outside in nature, you're going to feel better. And these longer races, ultras, you can leave all that stuff behind mm-hmm. and, you know, go out and live in this sort of idyllic world for six or 12 or 24 or 48 hours. And and it's there waiting for everybody. And by the way, at Badwater Cape Fear, almost nobody has ever DNF'd. Um, part of that is because we let people change categories. <laughs> so you can finish the... Sign up for the 51-mile race, but when you hit the 50K finish, you can drop down. Or you can sign up for the 50K and, quote, unquote, upgrade and do the 51-mile. So it's also one of the reasons it's hard to so so few people drop out is because once you're in that beach, you're committed. And (laughs) and if you get to the far end of the beach over nine miles away and you want to quit, well, you can do that. But it's two ferry rides back to the island. (laughs) because you
2: know <laughs> i mean there was i i, I said at aid station two, which is in the middle of the beach and it was the, it's like four and a half miles away from the finish or something like yeah. that and um there was a dnf at the very for the second year i volunteered i guess it was 2018 and i was like you're so close and he's like i just i'm not going like okay and so we we, we ended up waiting like an hour until because we had to tear down everything and so we ended up riding back with us after everything tore down I was like, yeah. okay. It, I will, think it kind just of want one hand mm-hmm.
0: all the DNFs we've had since 2014. Yeah, it's small. Uh, people, you know, and they want the finish. They want that badwater medal for the 50K or the buckle, mm-hmm. you know, for the for the 51 mile race. That's and, so sweet, sweet. Yeah. Yeah, you got to come get one of those, I Yeah, no, no, I need so, to so, both of you so get out and do that people are so much more capable than they realize and even though it's like grueling and insane and we've talked about puking and diarrhea and blisters and heat stroke and all this stuff most of the time it's actually really fun and the other crazy cool thing about ultra sports is you can go out there and just suffer like crazy and like within five minutes of finishing you just think it was the greatest thing that you ever did in your life and you just like forget about all the, you know, painful stuff. And you just remember all the great stuff and which is kind of hilarious, but it's awesome. It's like a human coping mechanism (laughs) that you, you know, survive, it's like part of survival of the fitness is that you don't care about the painful, you know, hard stuff. You accomplished your goal and you had a great time, at least most of the time doing it. Like I've never had anyone finish and say that sucked and I wish I'd (laughs) done this. Like this, literally, never happened. Everybody is stoked when they finish.
2: Uh, they may want to quit running. I was gonna say, I've, I've, <laughs> yeah. tried, to,
0: I've, I've tried to quit running several times,
1: but, but you weren't. You didn't regret doing it, but but then within a day, yeah, you, you know, like we talk thing. about, then you're looking for the next it's high. Awesome. You know, that's yeah, a great man. answer. But uh, that was fantastic. In fact, I already know. I saw in there. I was like, oh, that's gonna be a good clip for the beginning. <laughs> that was a, that was really good, but. Um, Chris, it has been such an honor to have you spend your time with us tonight. Um, we know you're a busy guy. And here's the deal. I'll throw it out there. You know, like I said, we're putting on our first race. You ever need a tip? Just give us, you know, we're open door. Just give us, yeah. uh, you know, reach on out. We'll give you some, some race to I, I tell
0: you, I've put on <laughs> over 150 events, but I am a sponge. I'm like, every event I go to or even observe online, I'm looking for things that, you know, I'm I, I'm an equal opportunity stealer of great ideas. Yeah, that's great. And Thanks, man. Uh, I, wish you, I wish you good luck with it and good luck to all the runners.
2: We
1: appreciate that. Well, yeah. thank you. And again, uh, just thank you so much for your time for the Ultra Running Guys family. Uh, we can't tell you how much we appreciate you. If you like what you're hearing, make sure... Uh, Give us a follow, leave a comment. And Chris, what's the best way for, because I've got a bunch of information on you, but what's the best way for people to follow you, uh, check in on your races? Where do you want to send them?
0: Well, the website is badwater.com. Instagram is badwaterhq. Mm -hmm. And uh, so those are the easiest, best places. You know, we have Facebook, easy to find um, as well. And we have an email newsletter, kind of old school, but we still have over 7,000 subscribers. And you can hit our website and sign up for that. And uh, we like putting it all out there and just inspiring people and encouraging people and championing the people who, you know, do these things. And, yeah, and uh, and then, you know, I'm on all those things, too. So people are welcome to check us out and, and, uh, you know, come run, come volunteer, come be on a crew, watch it online. Just bring some bad water into your life.
1: That's right. Perfect. And we'll put that stuff in the notes uh, for everybody listening. So check it there and and I'll kind of list everything I have. But Chris, um, it really has been an honor. And uh, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it.
0: My pleasure, guys. All right. right.
1: Cut. cut. Cut.
0: Too many podcasts are too damn long in my opinion.
2: Because I had front run my first ultra in 2016 and yeah. reached out to you and then you showed up at my house and didn't know who you were from anybody.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now you are going to be cranking the song by Europe, right? Yes, that's don't the bankers. deal.
2: <laughs> I mean, i would heard a bad word, but I was like, I don't know who Chris Cosman is. And now I've done all this running and stuff and paid more attention. Like, Oh God, I had Chris Cosman in my house. I'm a <laughs> dork. <laughs> what, this would be one of those parts we cut out. I
0: bet you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Are you gonna be streaming it on Facebook?
2: I'm oh. sure we will. Probably not the whole thing, but we'll be going live. Oh yeah, okay. But <laughs> not both. And listen, we are a whole knit together. That, <laughs> da, 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 that's our theme, man. Yeah. <laughs> so let me just say this real quick. Remember how when you took over Bad Water, you said they had two staff?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right here, brother. It's
2: him and I. So.
0: <laughs> that sounds like a really, yeah, that's an exciting concept. And lucky you it sounds like you only need one permit or less so
2: exactly uh,
0: yeah <laughs> that's, uh,
2: that's the way we fire.
0: roll. and you if you take a look that's you, the award these are our awards oh first. good i was wondering about that okay yeah. replicas
2: for first place uh male and female being I
0: mean, one of the best 80s one hit wonders of them all uh i mean who the heck was europe but that song is awesome Um, you know, if you want people other than ultra runners listening,
1: right? <laughs> you know,
0: ultra runners are like the only people who can consume these, that and people who commute like three hours a day, uh, you know, are the only people who can even listen to these hour, hour and a half, two hour long podcasts that I, I see all the time.